This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. You've probably been following Elon Musk's efforts to buy Twitter, or more recently, his efforts to maybe get out of his offer to buy Twitter. But before all of this happened, there was the funding secured fiasco a few years back. Tesla, of course, the primary uh, business vehicle for Elon Musk, is a public company. And for years, there's been a lot of controversy about whether Tesla's stock price is unreasonably high. Elon Musk uh, got particularly upset about short sellers, uh, people who were betting the Tesla stock price would fall, in Elon's view, causing its price to be lower than it otherwise would have been. Uh, And so he was fed up and Elon announced that he was going to take Tesla private. If you don't have a public company, you don't have to worry about short sellers, problem solved. And he tweeted that he had funding secured to take the company private at $420 a share, which he did not. And he never took Tesla private and he got fined $20 million by the SEC for claiming that he would. Tesla also got fined $20 million. Elon also entered into an agreement where he was supposed to have his lawyers review certain kinds of statements before he shares them on social media, but that doesn't seem to have made him more repressed or, or even have stopped him in the context of the Twitter deal from spewing certain market-moving information and claims straight out onto the internet. Uh, to talk about that and the set of governance mechanisms around this that govern what you're not supposed to do in the markets and uh, that cause most people to not do certain things that, that Elon Musk will go ahead and do, uh, I have Matt Levine here this week. Matt is a Bloomberg opinion columnist. He he writes the very popular daily newsletter, Money Stuff. Uh, in a past life, Matt was an attorney at Goldman Sachs, and he knows about uh, essentially every uh, nook and cranny of the financial markets, uh, as far as I can tell. Uh, Matt, I want to thank you so much for being here with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so I guess my first question is, who is supposed to be protected by these rules? Why does the government care uh, if Elon Musk says things on Twitter about what he is or isn't going to buy uh, in ways that uh, may not fully represent his, uh, his his intentions or his capabilities. You know, the goal is to protect regular investors. That's sort of the what the SEC is most interested in, is protecting sort of ordinary investors who might buy stock. And there's a view that they're kind of like believing everything they see on Twitter. And if what they see on Twitter isn't true, then that's bad. And if what they see on Twitter comes from the CEO of a company, then that's like really bad. It's sort of like, you know, he is arguably deceiving them about the stock of his own company. That's uh, that's frowned upon. It's it's bad for investors who buy stock thinking it'll go up and then it, go, it doesn't go up because they were deceived. It's also sort of bad for, I think the SEC is interested in like a kind of general like feeling that markets are normal and fair. <laughs> and when a CEO is saying stuff that is even just confusing, never mind like fraudulent, when a CEO is saying stuff like this, people get kind of antsy about the state of the public markets generally. And the SEC kind of views its mission as like protecting the sort of decorum of the public markets. Does it matter whether there is actual harm accruing to those investors? I mean, uh, Tesla, as as the day we're taping, it's trading at $638 a share. Uh, So anyone who bought Tesla stock and the expectation that Elon might take it private at $420 a share a few years ago has done very well for himself. Yeah, to be clear, there's been stock splits, so like they did really, really well for themselves. Yes, you're right. Tesla had a five-for-one stock split in August 2020, uh, meaning they took one of the old shares, exchanged it for five new shares. That means the current price is equivalent to more than $3,000. It's like Tesla is up, give or take, a 1,000% from where it was trading in August 2018 when Elon did that funding secured bit. It's a big rise. 
Yes. So th those investors, anyone, retail investors in Tesla have done quite well for themselves. And more broadly, you, you have this thing you call the Elon markets hypothesis that basically, you know, stock prices of companies move based on their proximity to Elon Musk. There's a lot of people out there who really like Elon Musk, want to be invested in things he's associated with. If something has the stench of Elon on it, it goes up in value. Uh, and a lot of that value seems to be created uh, by the public persona that he's created for himself, of which his Twitter presence is, is no small part. So then, wouldn't he have a pretty good argument that whatever nonsense he's doing is is accretive for those investors, is in their interests, and is, you know that there's no investor harm associated with whatever he's doing? I think it's clearly. I think that like Elon's overall shtick has clearly been really good for Tesla investors. The SEC, you know, you can take a narrow view of that and say like if you bought the stock at you know three seventy when he tweeted he was going to take it private, and then like the week later the stock is down to like 340 because it turned out it wasn't true and you sold the stock there, then you lost money, right? And that's all you need as like a hook. Like someone lost money on this. Like if you bought the stock when he said that and you held it until now, you did really, really well. But you can sort of find a, a loser in, in kind of any sort of stock price path. And the SEC takes kind of a narrow-minded view of this and says if, if people were deceived and if anyone lost money, then that's bad. Also, they don't like the deception. They just like... Like, I think the answer to your question is it doesn't really matter if anyone was harmed. And I think the SEC has an interest in protecting the, like, the, you know, people say the integrity of the markets. They have an interest in putting out the view that corporate chief executive officers have to say true things that have been kind of reviewed by a lawyer. And I think if you're a Tesla shareholder, you don't think that and you're, you've done well from not thinking that. But the SEC thinks it. And, you know, they, like, to, to everyone's credit, like, Elon and the SEC like genuinely disagree with us and about this and have not compromised, right? Like <laughs> the SEC keeps going after him and he keeps fighting back. Like they just they truly disagree about like what he's allowed to say. Because one theme here has been that whatever enforcement tools the SEC has don't look like they've been terribly effective at, at changing Elon's behavior. As you know, he certainly hasn't hasn't agreed that they're correct on this point. You've also seen. In the context of Twitter, I mean, before he had made this offer for the company, the company accepted, he'd, he'd acquired a very substantial stake in the company, and he filed a form basically saying that he's bought this as a passive investment, that he's not intending to become an active investor, which if he wasn't intending that at the time, his intentions changed very quickly. They also didn't file stuff on time. And there are supposed to be, again, there are supposed to be investor interests in knowing things about when people are, are accruing these large stakes in, in public companies. They might try to take them over. They might, you know, do board fights. That's sort of thing. And so he didn't follow some of those rules. And it sort of looks like, you know, he probably won't get in a lot of trouble relative to either his net worth or the financial interest he has in the deal. You know, I mean, I, I, th I think you suggested in your newsletter that he saved quite a bit of money on some of the, the shares that he bought up because the price likely would have risen sooner if people had known about his intentions related to the company. Yeah, it's interesting. Like if you think about, so what he did is he filed this form late, right? And so people didn't find out that he was a big owner of the stock until about 11 days after they were supposed to. And meanwhile, he was buying more stock. When he announced that he was an owner, the stock went up. And so he was buying, you know, in the, let's say in like the you know mid 30s when like he should have been paying like in the 40s or whatever, right? And you can identify specific stockholders who were harmed by that. People who sold at a lower price during that period who presumably would have been able to sell at a higher price. Yeah, exactly. Now, you know, the sort of caveat to that is that since then, like tech stocks have crashed. And <laughs> if you sold to Elon in that window after you were supposed to know that he was buying, but before you actually knew that he was buying, you still did pretty well. Like you actually like you're happy that you sold there instead of waiting. 
And in particular, <laughs> you're happy that he's like, you know, trying to buy the company because Twitter stock has held up relatively well because there is this like vague promise that Elon's going to buy it. Although it hasn't held up that well because no one really believes that. But uh, all in all, like Elon's involvement in Twitter stock has been very good for like almost every Twitter shareholder. So it's hard to complain too much. But yeah, again, <laughs> if you like sort of focus on the very narrow issue, like someone sold at a lower price than they would have had they known that he was buying the stock like that day. And so, yeah, like he saved like $140 million. It also depends on your counterfactual, right? Like compared to Elon does not try to buy Twitter at all, you are better off. But compared to yes. Elon follows the rules while trying to buy Twitter, Absolutely. You're, worse you're worse off. You presumably would have sold to him for an even higher price. And I think part of the idea with these rules is there's supposed to be a way that you go about things and you can't just say, well, the thing I did was better for them if I hadn't, than if I hadn't done the purchase at all. Yes. Although uh, getting this gets a little further afield from Elon, but like, like one thing those rules do is actually deter people from being activists or trying to buy oh, companies. And so there is like, like, it's not clear what the right counterfactual is. I think in Elon's case, like these rules didn't deter him because he doesn't follow them. So it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but like in other cases, activists say, if these rules were like relatively laxer, there would be more activism, more people trying to buy companies, and it would be better for shareholders overall. And now the SEC is trying to make these rules tighter, which arguably is worse for activism. But in Elon's case, I agree, it doesn't matter because he just doesn't follow the rules. Right. As people have looked on sort of with this hopelessness about, you know, like it's, these rules are effectively optional for Elon because whatever enforcement tools are available are just, you know, really weak and trivial. I can, I can sort of imagine two theories of, of what's going on there. One is you could have a different style of enforcement regime. I don't know whether it's higher fines or criminal penalties or whatever it might be that would make it such that Elon would feel compelled that he has to follow this. And then he would behave more like people who are not quite as wealthy as him, not quite as brash as him. The other is that the primary reason that people don't behave like Elon Musk is not a regulatory reason, but either it's, you know, shame or decorum or that it's, you know, if most company CEOs went out and behaved in public like Elon Musk, they think that would not be, that would not add shareholder value, that the markets would look negatively on that, would think of them as loose cannons, would be like, well, why would I accept an offer from this guy given how he, you know, came out and claimed he was going to take Tesla private and he actually didn't. It seems like something works for him that most people think it, it, it's not necessarily that they're going to be punished by the government. They think they're going to be punished by the market if they behave like he does. Is that right? I think that there's an expectation in like big business that almost everyone is kind of embedded in a world where there's a certain kind of reputation that matters and everyone wants to optimize that reputation. And that reputation could be like, you, you might want to like be perceived as being like sharp elbowed, but you want to be perceived as like following the law. Um, you want to get along with your regulators. Like, you know, Tesla is a fairly regulated company and it's in fights with all of its regulators. And I think that a lot of companies would say it's important for us to have a good relationship with our regulators because it's a, a real headache to have to fight over everything. And Tesla enjoys fighting over everything. Um, you know, away from the SEC stuff, like the biggest story about Elon Musk right now is, is he going to buy Twitter? And you can sort of read the merger agreement and you can kind of parse through like what the possible options are here. And in general, the people who sign merger agreements have a certain set of relationships to like how they fulfill their obligations, right? Like if you're a <laughs> private equity company, it's bad for you to just be perceived as like, you know, whimsically walking away from a deal because you're doing other deals. 
Um, right. For Elon Musk, it doesn't work that way, in part because he's doing fewer deals, right? He's not like a, you know, in the business of deal making the way private equity is, but also because he's created this like persona where his fans will like him no matter what. And like, he does have this sort of like track record of creating value where like, if he tries to buy another company, like no one's going to say no if he walks away from Twitter, like it's, or some people will say no, but like he has a lot of like room to operate that other people don't have. And it's in part by just sort of like being shameless. It's in part by being the richest person in the world. So he can sort of pay to get out of a lot of problems. And, uh, you know, it's in part by just sort of like having the confidence to follow through on all of these things in a way that most people would be like, you know, it might be good for me to break the law here, but like in general, I'm not going to break the law. Like I'm like, <laughs> it seems like an irrational choice to break the law. With Elon Musk, he's not like deterred by that, you know? Are there more people who who could and, and should be doing that? I mean, maybe not should from like a societal perspective, but he's he seems like a unique figure in, in global business right now. Does he? I feel like there's one other name who I always hear. What is that? When I write about Elon, that's Donald Trump. But Donald Trump did not build successful business enterprises in the way that in the way that Elon Musk has. I mean, well, no, no, I agree. But like, but what I would say is that like this this sort of like question of like is it optimal to operate with a lot more shamelessness than most people use? I think that in a lot of areas, people are learning that it, that it might be. <laughs> yeah, but it, I, no, I think it's different because I think sort of famously with Donald Trump's businesses, he had great difficulty building long-running, successful operating businesses in part because of the ways that he alienated counterparties and financial institutions. He ended up in this business that that made him a lot of money uh, doing branding, selling The Apprentice and licensing his name to other people's real estate projects. He couldn't even make money operating casinos when he had, was in this sort of oligopoly in Atlantic City with a much better geographic location than Las Vegas and did not build that into a, into a long-running, successful business. So, I think that, you know, Trump showed a way that you could use a persona like that to build a public image, to build a brand, to build a political career. But Elon Musk has these operating businesses that, as you note, require all these relationships with regulators, require really extensive debt and equity financing. So you have to keep financial institutions willing to lend to you in a way that, you know, when I was I when I was a banker at Wells Fargo and, you know, from 05 to 09, Donald Trump was an example of a name that they would give you as someone that you don't lend to because you think he's a bad character, regardless of the underlying credit aspects of the things that you might be lending against. And so, it, you know, I don't think that worked for him in the way that it appears to be working with for Elon Musk. Donald Trump also is not as wealthy as Elon Musk. Now, I mean, I guess, you know, there, there's questions about the, the long-run financial value of Tesla and whether the, the stock price is excessive compared to the, the likely size of that business. But they really do make these cars. They, you know, SpaceX really does rockets and does put rockets in space. So it seems like Elon has some of the reasons to have concerns about those relationships that you might if you were in other places. He really does have those ongoing relationships that he seems to be managing in this way, in a way that I don't think Donald Trump ever did. Yeah, I think he is in a position to be strategic about like when he decides to do the wrong thing. Like, if he broke all of his agreements, he would not be a successful businessman. But like his commitment to Twitter is less ironclad than like a, a private equity firms would be. Hi, just a quick note before my interview with Matt Levine continues. Last week, I got a really interesting question from a listener who lives in Idaho. 
This listener is a liberal, but she re-registered as a Republican in order to vote in Ohio's competitive local races. She wanted to know if I thought this was a good strategy, because her friends were unfairly giving her grief about it. I really like this question. I've argued before that it's important to register for a political party rather than be an independent, especially if your state has a close primary. But it was interesting to consider if you should necessarily register with the party you agree with most. You can find her full question, my full answer, in the Very Serious newsletter. That's at joshbarrow.com. I also wrote recently about how stupid it is that at the very moment when abortion access is about to be rolled back, some Democrats want to spend their time arguing that we should say decision instead of choice. I wrote about why there's no disconnect between people saying the economy is bad, but their personal finances are good. This is just about the difference between an income statement and a balance sheet. And on a lighter note, I wrote about my recent trip to Las Vegas, playing craps and bonding with a bunch of strangers, an embarrassing moment at a poker table involving this very podcast, and on a whim, catching an amazing Lady Gaga show. So those are some of my recent newsletters. You can catch up on all of them at joshbarrow.com. And if you really want to catch up, you can see some of my most popular issues so far, like about how I decided to get married, about my pandemic workout routine, about why changing the clocks for daylight saving time is still a good idea. And by the way, have you noticed no one is complaining about it anymore? People forget about this like two or three days after we changed the clocks. They were like, oh my God, I'm dying. You made me get up an hour early. And then a week later, it's like they forgot that it ever happened. Uh, anyway, you can find all those and more at joshbarrow.com. You can also sign up to receive most of my newsletters for free or all of them for $6 a month or $60 for the year. Plus, that means you can join our discussion threads on the newsletters and on all these podcast episodes. It's such a deal. Your support means a lot to me. It makes all of this work possible. So thank you to those of you who are paying subscribers. Again, you can find all of that at joshbarrow.com. Okay, now back to Matt. So let's talk about that Twitter agreement, because people the way people have been sort of talking about this is that, you know, it's the he's, he's agreed to buy Twitter at approximately $54 a share. 54.20. You need to have a 4.20 if you're- 54.20, yes. Yes. And if the deal doesn't close, there's a breakup fee of a billion dollars, which is, you know, it's a small fraction of the total purchase price. But it's not just that, right? Like Twitter has a legal right to not just, they don't have to just accept the breakup fee. They can force him to close. This stuff where he says, well, you know, I think there's too many bots on Twitter and I'm going to do my investigation investigation and figure out if there are too many bots on Twitter. Elon does not have a legal right to do that under this contract, right? That's basically right. Yeah. He can get out of the contract if Twitter, you know, if there are certain like material lies in Twitter's SEC filings or in the merger agreement. But like, if in fact, Elon found out that 90% of Twitter users were bots and that Twitter knew that and has been lying about it for years in its SEC filings, then he could probably get out of the deal. But like, he doesn't even, he's not even trying to say that. So. But so can he in, in practice get out of the deal? I mean, I know that it's it's sort of it's an awkward position to be in where you're like suing someone in court trying to force them to buy you. And you have these banks along for the ride that have to lend billions of dollars in the process of doing this acquisition that the buyer no longer really wants to do. That sounds like a situation that could be fraught. Yeah, it's hard. Like I like I don't know what will happen if they have to go to that. If they have to sue him for a specific performance to close the deal. I think that in my like M&A lawyer reading the contract view, like the contract says they can do that and there's just no excuse for him not to close. And the banks have fairly committed like commitment letters to finance him. So it's all like, you know, the sort of like, you know, the steps work, but uh, to actually go to court and say, you have to buy this company that you don't want anymore seems hard. It's a weird situation because the contract limits his damages to a billion dollars, the breakup fee. So. Basically, a court can either force him to close or it can charge him a billion dollars, which is like a small amount of money in the scheme of things. There's nowhere in between, right? There's no like, 
like the actual damages to Twitter of him walking away are like, you know, I don't know, $10 billion. And like, he can't be forced to pay $10 billion. He can be forced to pay 46 or one. So it's a bit of a gamble. I think that like Twitter seems to like their odds and I like their odds, but like, it's not a hundred percent, you know, it's like more likely than not, they'd win if they had to do that. But then that also leaves you room for renegotiation where like either he walks away and pays a bigger breakup fee or he closes, but pays a lower price. Right. So there is some room for compromise there, but it's pretty embarrassing for Twitter to compromise. I don't, I don't know. Well, but I mean, the, the other thing that seems embarrassing here, right. Is, you know, we've, we've talked about what's happened here that Elon having come in and offered to buy Twitter seems quite good for Twitter shareholders compared to where they would be otherwise right now, because other tech stocks are just completely in the toilet right now. And so one of the questions initially when the Twitter board accepted this offer was the offer didn't seem that high. You know, Twitter had been trading higher than this as recently as last fall. Should the board have held out for a better offer? Now that the offer price looks pretty good. But one thing I, I see when I look at that is shouldn't they have demanded a larger breakup fee? Like, wasn't it pretty foreseeable that Elon Musk might change his mind about his interest in buying Twitter? He's been capricious about these things in the past. A billion is a nice round number. You would think they could have negotiated or would have tried to negotiate for a higher fee because of exactly this possible eventuality. They should have. And I worry that like, I worry that if you just sort of read the agreement and think about it in the abstract, you say, no, you have a specific performance, right? You can sue and make him close. <laughs> and the day you're signing the deal, when he's like pushing to get the deal done and you're kind of like annoyed by him and you kind of don't want him to buy the company, but you kind of feel like you have to. <laughs> the lawyer tells you you have the specific performance, right? You're like, oh, okay, that's enough. Like that, that's good certainty, right? But then, like, you get here, you're like, ah, I wish it was three billion, right? You wish it was ten billion. I mean, especially, I mean, from his position, if he's annoyed about the high breakup fee, aren't you like, well, you really do want to buy Twitter, don't you, Elon? You're not going to pay this breakup fee. You're going to acquire the company. Maybe they tried to push on this, and and he said no. But and the whole process was pretty fast. Yeah, and they actually they describe the process in the in the proxy statement. So there's like a sort of long description of the process. It's like written by lawyers and it doesn't necessarily capture everything. But what it says is that they negotiated a lot over the specific performance right. And like the breakup fee was kind of fine. Um so I think that they cared about this, but they just sort of cared about it in the wrong way. Wasn't it also foreseeable that it was going to be that it, that it would be a real mess to try to enforce specific I mean, I what quote you had in your newsletter basically was like, if you're reading the contract to try to figure out how you can make the other guy close, you are already fucked. Yeah, but that's like a general um, feature of M&A, which is that at the time you sign the contract, everyone is pretty enthusiastic. And so you're just like, <laughs> it's just hard to put yourself in the shoes of like, he's trying to walk away because like, he's not trying to walk away when you sign the contract. And like, obviously you have lawyers who, who like think about this and have done it before and have like litigated it before and know that people sometimes walk away, but it's just, it's hard to think about it in a clear way. And you're like negotiating over other things and- or you're negotiating with Elon Musk who might not want to negotiate over anything. You know, like it's 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 tough, right? And like this is not front of mind in the way it is after he starts tweeting that he's going to walk away from the deal. <laughs> Aside from this, how, how well did the Twitter board do their job um, or have they done their job? Because I mean, it's, it's sort of a disappointing outcome for the company to be acquired for approximately what it went public for many years earlier. You would think ideally Twitter would have found a way to grow its business in the way some of its competitors have and become a larger, much more profitable company that would have been worth a lot more. 
there was a lot of discontent among employees and certain people in the media and users who just felt that like Elon has the wrong product vision for the company and that they ought to have done something different. But then the, the product vision, I think, has been a little bit underwhelming for a number of years, which is part of why the financial performance hasn't been great. Like where did where did Twitter's board go wrong along the way here? And was was accepting the offer one of the wrong steps or was that you know, them finally you know finding the right time to throw in the towel? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's you know, it's been less financially successful than like you know Facebook, and it is always you know the knock on Twitter has always been that it is like enormously culturally influential and hasn't found a way to turn that into giant piles of money in the way that Facebook has. Like, let's say Elon Musk buys Twitter, right? Like, one of two things might happen. Like, one, he'll make it really profitable, and then you'll be like, "Man, Twitter board, you should have just made it really profitable so that like <laughs> your shareholders would have made that money instead of Elon Musk, right?" And that's totally possible, right? Like, he's good at business, right? And like, he might have better ideas. I haven't heard any of them. Like, everything he says about it just sort of sounds insane and like a like a you know sort of like political talking point rather than he says a business he's going to quadruple the user base. Yeah, right. Like, there's like a there's like a deck that like doesn't have any you know, substance to it, but like says he's going to make a lot of money. Um, so he might make a lot of money. And then like, it's very easy to say what Twitter's board did wrong, which is that they, um, they like didn't do the things that he did to make money. The other possibility is that he won't. Right. And that's like almost worse because then the story is that like the richest man in the world wanted to pay $46 billion for this product. Cause he liked it so much. Right. And like, if you own that product and like, that's your product, like, you have to find a way to monetize it. That isn't it just selling it to the one bidder, you know? Like, if the richest man in the world loves it that much, like, surely, like, some <laughs> other rich people will give you money for something, right? Like, there's some way, like, that thing that is so valuable, you have to find a way to monetize it. And, like, you can say, well, it's culturally influential, but it's not that, like, it's hard to make money off of it. But, like, Elon Musk will give you $46 billion for it. It's just valuable. I don't know. Isn't there a, another possibility here, though, which is, which is that the the financial performance of Twitter as a company is not especially impressive under Elon's management, but the stock price is impressive because of the Elon markets hypothesis. Maybe he can even take out some of the some of the lenders by issuing more equity because there is demand for shares in the way that there is demand for for Tesla shares. It seems like, I, I mean, in theory, you shouldn't be able to do this forever, but for some period, you could he could achieve a disconnection between the actual financial performance of the company and the stock price. Yeah, it's complicated because like in theory, day one, Twitter goes private and so it doesn't have a stock price. And the only people invested in it are Elon and like, you know, he's got like a dozen kind right. of big like venture funds and stuff. Right. Um, Sorry, I was thinking about this because he's been in this weird position where he's out on a roadshow basically selling interests in the private company. Yeah, and, and and I don't think that like I don't think you're totally wrong, right? I mean, I think like one, there is talk about like this the like private equity being syndicated to like kind of small investors in like weird ways where like people are raising funds to go sell it to, you know, a bunch of dentists so that like if you're an Elon <laughs> fan and you're, it's not like, not like any retail investor, but if like you're an Elon fan with like a hundred thousand dollars to invest, like you can probably get in. Whereas like the checks so far have been like a billion dollars. But then also he's talked about taking it public again fairly quickly. Right. And I've written a little about this, like his interest in taking Tesla private was never actually in taking Tesla private. I don't really know what it was. He was annoyed about the short sellers. It was all, it was like getting mad at short sellers, right? It's unclear what he really meant. But in what he said, he was interested in sort of keeping all of the investors, but like not having the stock price go down or whatever. Well, he basically wants a walled garden where you're only allowed to trade in his company if you like Elon Musk. Yeah, exactly. I think he's found that. Like, I, like yeah. I think it's hard to short Tesla because like he can just blow you up because he can just say stuff and the stock will go up. Um, <laughs> and so, in fact, he has like a pretty. It's not like they're active, like you know, Elliot or whatever. They're not like activist investors buying Tesla stock and saying, "Oh, you should like 
throw Elon Musk out or like there's no like the stuff that happens at other public companies just doesn't happen at his companies. And so anyway, yeah, I mean, he's talking about taking Twitter public again in like two or three years, which is a pretty short timeline for a for a leveraged buyout like this. But the idea is is kind of what you say, which is that like you take this company that is owned by regular investors and you take it private and you get rid of all the regular investors. And then you take it public again, like, you know, a month later and you sell it to like Elon Musk fans. And then it trades like an Elon Musk stock rather than like a sort of poorly performing social media company. So I think that there is like an element <laughs> where that is true. One way that Tesla trades on Elon Musk's like, you know, popularity is by him tweeting. And you could easily imagine him like tweeting new product ideas at Twitter and having the stock of like an Elon controlled Twitter go up and <laughs> and having that be, you know, a viable thing. Now, I, I don't know what that gets him, right? I mean, I, I guess he, like, it's, I don't know what his goals in life are, you know, like, like <laughs> certainly if the stock goes up, he gets richer and he can like borrow money against it and like buy more yachts. But like, he's not like a real yacht guy. Um, he like sort of claims not to own a house. You know, people are always talking about how he's like pumping up the stock of Tesla and like he's doing things that kind of look like pumping up the stock of Tesla, but it's not like he's doing it for some end, right? He's not like then selling the stock, except like he's sort of doing that now to buy Twitter, but like, I don't know. That's part of what I find a little pathetic about the Twitter acquisition is like, you know, Elon is like, you know, he wants to colonize Mars and he's building these very sleek electric cars and he has this vision about decarbonization and how we're going to electrify the planet. And he's, you know, he's launches rockets into space and like Twitter, like the website where basically like journalists go to waste their time and like get more into an echo chamber by listening to each other's whiny complaints like that that has been placed on a par with rockets and it's and it, and and to be clear to everyone like you know he may claim that he doesn't care about the economics of this deal but it is a ton it's tens of billions of dollars it's a ton of money even for him it's going to take up a ton of his wealth and a ton of his energy it just feels to me like it's not futuristic it's sort of less cool than i would expect from elon musk uh i don't disagree and like my my main perception of it is that like He's like all of us and he's just addicted to Twitter and like <laughs> he's like got his day job where he's colonizing Mars and he's like just five more minutes on Twitter, right? And like that's what's motivating this. I don't know. I mean, like you tell a story that's like, in fact, nobody lives on Mars, right? And like maybe one day people <laughs> live on Mars. But like global human society is like an important underpinning of anything that he does. And if he thinks that like Twitter is a really good propagandizing tool or like a really important, you know, he's called it the town square. If he thinks it's really important for like human flourishing that we have this like town square and he wants to optimize it. Like, I don't like, I don't think that's a crazy, like Twitter as it exists and as I experience it is like, is like clearly not on par with like, you know, solving <laughs> climate change or colonizing Mars. But like thinking that social media is like really, really important to humanity is I don't think like a completely insane position. I have a, a few questions uh, that listeners sent in that I'd like to put to you. Uh, one is about ESG investing. This is investing focused on in environment, uh, social issues, and, and, and governance. Um, and uh, a lot of people complaining about this lately, including Elon Musk, uh, who was mad the other day that uh, S&P took Tesla off of its ESG index, uh, but 
ExxonMobil remains on the ESG index. And so the, the Ben writes in and asks, first of all, you, you get sort of two sets of complaints about ESG. One is that like, you know, for conservatives saying it's some woke nonsense trying to push companies to do all these things we don't want them to do. The other is that basically that it's it's greenwashing or wokewashing that, you know, maybe the goals for ESG are good, but the implementation ends up being sort of nonsense. I mean, this is basically the, the complaint that Elon himself is making. Ben wants to know how much ESG matters. Is it really driving capital allocations? Is it changing corporate behavior? Or is it just something that people talk about a lot on Wall Street? I think the main place where you see ESG is like it's a marketing tool for uh, big investment managers, right? Like if you're a big investment manager, you talk about ESG. One way to interpret that is that investors care, right? Like there's some number of like ultimate clients who care. And it's hard to know exactly what that means, right? Some of it is like people like you and me who invest our money, we want to invest with socially responsible managers rather than not. A lot of it is not quite that, right? It's like, it's like union pension funds want to invest with socially responsible managers, right? It's hard to know who's making these decisions and who they're answerable to. But like investment managers seem to find it useful in marketing to say that they care about ESG, which I think kind of cuts against some of the like Republican complaints, right? It's not like that. It's not quite that like a bunch of like New York liberals are. It's like Larry Fink at BlackRock trying to trying to rule the world. Yeah. It's not quite that they're trying to invest your money in ways that you don't want to invest it in, like they're trying to like, you know, steal your retirement fund to to fund their woke activities. It's kind of more like they think that's what you want because and they're doing it because that's how they get paid, right? Um, which is like both a like positive and negative story. Like it's 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 like largely positive because it like suggests a, a view about what, what ultimate investors want that is like kind of good. And it like is appropriately cynical about the financial industry, right? It's not that like they're evil people. It's just that they're they're doing stuff to make money, not because of like they're trying to impose their political views on you. But is that actually meaningfully changing the way that we're invested or the way the, the branding is? I mean, you know, I mean, for example, when I was a business insider, they added a socially conscious investment fund to the 401k plan and it had an expense ratio over a hundred basis points, which I think is ridiculous. I emailed the, the benefit managers to complain that I didn't think they should offer any funds with with over one hundred basis point uh, expense ratio. It's just charging too much to the investor. But so, I mean, to your point, you know, the I think one reason investment firms like this is they can charge more for the product. You also floated this idea in your newsletter where it's basically if you came up with an ESG index that had the 500 most socially responsible companies in the S&P 500, which is to say all of them, uh, then you could brand it as an ESG index. You could charge a really low fee because the management would be really easy. You would just buy everything in the S&P 500 and you could tell people that it was a socially responsible fund. Um, and I realize this is, this is an extreme example, but do some of the funds work sort of like that, where it's really like oh, the yeah. funds that are, that are rated as 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 socially conscious? That the companies that are called socially conscious aren't really that different from the ones that aren't, and so that could be inconsequential from a capital allocation perspective in society. If it's not changing what kind of companies find it cheap to raise capital in the equity markets or the debt markets, it doesn't change what sort of business actually gets done. It could be nothing other than a branding exercise in a way for some companies on Wall Street to make some money. I think there are like real like sort of genuine philosophical disagreements about like what ESG is meant to be doing. There are some people who consider themselves ESG who would say, I'm not going to buy fossil fuel companies because like fossil fuels are bad, right? And then there are other people who say, I'm going to buy the best, like the top half of the fossil fuel sector based on my ESG metrics, right? Because I want to encourage them to be better. And if I just stay away from fossil fuel companies, then I won't be encouraging oil companies to get better. And so I won't be having a good impact on the world, right? I'll be like very marginally increasing the cost of capital for oil companies, but 
I'll never talk to oil companies, right? Oil companies will never try to get me to give them money. And so they won't do anything to please me. And so they'll just like be owned by a bunch of people who like pollution and they'll just keep polluting. And I think that those are like both genuine, like, you know, sort of like plausible positions. And I think there are other positions like, you know, I'm just going to buy companies that will do well in a world of future climate of of a different future climate regulation. And I don't even care about the planet. I just care about the financial you know, impact of future climate regulation. I think that uh, much of ESG is much more like we're going to buy everything, but like, you know, tilt towards like the companies that are better in each sector than it is like we're going to buy only the good sectors. And I think there is a rationale for that, but it also like not all of them are meeting with all of the companies all the time, right? Like some of them are like, you know, we have a scoring system and we're going to like invest on that scoring system and we're never going to talk to anyone. And uh, we're going to sort of, you know, slap ESG on the, on the, on the name of the fund. And that's going to be, you know, it's not clear what you're doing, right? Like you're not raising the cost of capital for bad stuff. You're just sort of like slightly shifting allocations within a sector. It's kind of funny, right? Because how you should feel about that as an investing strategy should depend to some extent, I think, on how you feel about active management generally. I mean, you have other funds where it's like we're going to hire some really smart people and pay them a lot of money to try to pick the stocks they are going to outperform. I'm personally very skeptical on that. I think the track record on this is not good. You just pay a bunch of fees and you don't get better performance than if you just bought everything in the S&P 500. But if you believe that active management could produce really high returns, then you might worry that instead substituting this set of ESG metrics means that you're not picking the companies that are going to outperform financially. I mean, maybe you believe that ESG behaviors produce higher profits in the long run. I'm skeptical about that, however however you want to define them. By the way, I think most ESG managers would say that. Like, I'm also skeptical. But They like, would say they're skeptical too? No, I think that there's a lot of advertising that ESG is, is produces better long-term returns. And I think there's a lot of like sort of muddled thinking about that. But I think it's, I think it's hard to say that you are in the business of making less money for your clients, particularly if you're managing like ERISA retirement funds where you have a fiduciary duty to your clients. I think that people thread that needle by saying ESG is actually better for returns. If there's consumer demand for ESG, if consumers prefer to be in ESG conscious investments, shouldn't that produce a lower return over the long run? Yeah, it's a mixed bag, right? Because like, yeah. it should, what it should do is produce a lower return over the long run, but it should, as as, people, as money flows into the ESG funds, it, it should produce a higher return over the short term. And so you actually get like pretty good performance for ESG funds because like money keeps flowing into them. Just just for, for, for listeners who don't, who don't think about stocks every day, it's basically, a stock is like a bond in that there's an inverse relationship between the price and the yield. Uh, if you have, you know, the if a company becomes more demanded, you push the stock price up. If that hasn't actually caused the, the company's long run profits, to go up, then that means that the returns, whether in the form of equity, uh, of, of uh, dividends or appreciation over the long run should go down. Basically, that stock should perform worse. And, there, and then there are these funds that are sort of anti-ESG type funds where it's like, we're going to invest in tobacco companies and other, other disfavored areas of investment. And part of the theory there is supposed to be, well, other investors have shied away from this. This is a real business, produces real profits. Uh, it's basically a buying opportunity. Uh, and so those should be two sides of the same coin. It should be that if, you know, if, the, if the consumer demand case for ESG is true, that should undermine this investment case because basically it's, you know, it's whatever, it's the faddish thing. People have pushed up the price now. Yeah. But I just want to, I want to emphasize that 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 is true in the long term, but not necessarily in the short term where if you think that we are in the early innings of ESG, then you say there's a lot of demand coming for ESG stocks, which means if I buy ESG stocks now, they will go up. Right. And I think that like recent historical performance of ESG funds is about that. Right. We have another question uh, from Ryan who wants to know how you invest. 
Are you a boring investor or are you in Shiba Inu coin? I'm a super boring investor. I'm in like, you know, index funds. Um, I kind of wish I could buy crypto. I feel like it's sort of frowned upon for journalists <laughs> to like, like I wouldn't own a lot of crypto, but like, you know, like I don't own a little crypto, like not like. Why is owning crypto any more distorting than owning broad equity market index funds? Aren't you like. It's not. I, part of why I want to do it is because I th- like philosophically, I think it's like correct as a matter of journalistic ethics to be allowed to allocate some money to crypto. But I think it's like, you know, controversial. Because you should achieve it. something that reflects the overall financial market so that you're not biased in favor of one part of it, basically. Yeah. And I've written that and people have pointed out that the actual like global allocation to crypto is very small. Like it's like it's not like 10% of my wealth should be in crypto. It's like, you know, 0.1% or whatever. But yeah, I think like I should have a little crypto. Yeah. And has Bloomberg told you that you're not allowed to or you just haven't pulled the trigger on I don't that, actually what? know what their what their what their official <laughs> rules are. I think that a lot of media organizations are are, are sort of um figuring out those rules. Cuz I think initially it was like well, this is not a thing and so there were no rules. And then it was like you just can't own any crypto if you write about it and now it's like well, it's like an index fund. So do you worry at all about passive uh, indexing? I mean, th- there's basically this theory out there that if if all a, all people do is go out and just buy funds that have everything in the S and P 500, then everyone you know has the same stake in American and Delta and United Airlines, uh, and the incentives. If those companies are responsive to their shareholders, those shareholders don't want price wars. They don't want intense competition. They actually want sort of oligopolistic practices where the companies try to keep prices high and focus on the profits of the whole industry rather than the profits of the individual firm. I know this is a very contested theory. Do you buy into that? Are you, are you part of the problem by owning those those index funds? I mean, I read about that theory a lot. And uh, it's like one of these things where like it's hard to believe that like corporate executives are really motivated by that sort of thing. But like there is sort of suggestive evidence and there's certainly like suggestive theory where it's like you're supposed to be responsible to your shareholders and this is who your shareholders are. So I'm very interested in that theory. I don't worry too much about it at like the margins we're at, you know, I think that there's probably some cap on like how much indexing there can be. Right. I think there's probably like if 90% of the market was indexed, like that would be, that would create weird dynamics both for like capital allocation and for like how corporations make decisions Someone needs to reward the companies making good choices and punish the ones making bad choices in the market, basically. Yes, right. Yeah. Both as a matter of like motivating executives and as, as a matter of like allocating capital to someone or other than someone else. Right. Um, but like, I don't think we're that close to there. And like, there's something of a self-limiting system where like in good markets, index funds go up and people are like, why am I paying for this like fancy mutual fund when I can just buy the index that goes up? And then in bad markets, people are like, oh, I should be paying <laughs> someone to like not lose all my money. It's like not necessarily like a rational approach. But I think that there's a sort of view that like bull markets are good for like index fund asset gaining and bear markets are better for like weird strategies and active management. Sometimes that seems like sort of self-serving claims from like active managers who are like, oh, I'll protect you in a downturn and then they don't. But I think there's probably some truth to that. And I think that like if you don't have a forever bull market, then like indexing is never going to get to like, you know, 90 percent. I'm not too worried about it like where we are now. You write a lot about sort of weird aspects of financial markets, and you'll write about insider trading and scams and situations that, like in the Twitter merger where, you know, it's like, you know, can we find this provision in the agreement to enforce the purchase that they, they, they all seem to me like places where the financial markets have gotten really far away from serving a useful purpose, a useful capital allocating purpose in the real economy. And I'm wondering how, what's your mood about the usefulness of financial markets right now? Are we broadly, is this broadly a healthy system that is, you know, causing human flourishing and, you know, real profit in the real economy, goods and services that are useful to people? Is this stuff value creating broadly? 
I think broadly, yes. I think that like you can point to some things like I wouldn't have said any of those things. I'd have said like NFTs and <laughs> GameStop. Uh but like you can point to some things where you're like, it's very hard for me to see how this is like allocating capital in a good way and like contributing to human flourishing. Unless you like the pictures and the NFTs. I don't know. Um <laughs> what I will say is that like like we were talking about Tesla, right? And there's like someone who's like designing like the silicon and the chip that goes into like the touchscreen that goes into, you know, like, like, like there's like this like fractal complexity in like building a car, you know? And one thing that I think about finance is that there's like fractal complexity in like lending money to people or like allocating capital to businesses. And when you like talk about some weird derivative trade and you look at that weird derivative trade, you're like, well, this isn't contributing to human flourishing, but like you can sort of like <laughs> zoom out from there to see like why it is like slightly enhancing the liquidity of some market, which like slightly like lowers the cost of funding of some, you know, like there's some like you can sort of piece that story together. And when you do it, like for one thing, you sound like you're lying, right? Like you sound like you're sort of making this bizarre special pleading for this ridiculous thing. And like anyone who listens to you is like, clearly that can't actually be contributing to human flourishing. And you're just like spinning some like econ story that pretends it is. But I actually think that's like basically true. And that like any complicated business, there are like tiny subspecialties that kind of contribute to the whole, where if you just sort of look at the subspecialty, it's like hard to uh, feel like it has a lot of meaning. But like, the whole does and like the whole kind of works together in, a, in, a, in an interlocking way. I mean, I, th I, th I think the, the easier argument to make the, than that one would be to sort of concede that some of these things must not be creating value, but we don't know which ones. Yeah, right. I mean, when I say NFTs, like those, that's the one that I think isn't creating value, but I don't <laughs> think I'm, I'm not like confident I'm right. I just like kind of, that's my instinct. I, I think you're right about that. And right. And like certainly like things in the financial sector that I like touched and worked on when I was a banker and a lawyer. Um, I'm like, oh, those are good, right? And then the ones I don't know about, I'm like, ah, that sounds like bullshit, right? But like, that's not, you know, like, I, I agree with you. Like, there are some that are not creating value, but I think that like, it's like easy to assume that none of them are creating value and that like all complexity is bad and that this is all fake and it's all rent extraction. And I would, like, my gut would be that like 60% of it is not, right? And I agree, I don't know which one is which. 60% is a D minus that uh, Matt has has awarded to Wall Street right there. Uh, well, but it's like if you make money on 51% of your trades, like that's a good, that's a good day. <laughs> yes. Yeah, actually right. 60% in that context could, could make you a superstar. Matt Levine writes the Bloomberg newsletter Money Stuff, and he's also a Bloomberg opinion columnist. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week. 